Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Arin Carmon is my guest today, and it is a good one. Arin is, of course, the co-author of Notorious RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biography. It's been out for about five years now. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. She helped break the Me Too accusations against Charlie Rose for the Washington Post. And she has been reporting on all kinds of women's issues and other issues, of course. But one of her big focuses has been on women's issues for a long, long time. She's now at New York Magazine. Previously, she was at NBC News and MSNBC. And I got to tell you, this interview was a long time in the making. Arin actually was scheduled to be one of the early guests on this show. Uh, I launched this show in mid-May, and we were going to talk originally in mid-June. So she would have been in the first dozen or so episodes of Quarantine Creatives. But at the time, she was in her third trimester of pregnancy and knew that her baby could be born at any point. So we scheduled it with sort of the caveat that, you know, if it happens, it happens. We'll have to see. And literally, the day before we were scheduled to talk, Arin had her baby, which was awesome. But I got to just tell you a little funny aside. She emailed me at like three in the morning, right after her daughter had been born, to cancel the interview. I just thought that spoke volumes about who Arin is, that here she is in the hospital with her first child, having just given birth. And she says, oh, yeah. I have an interview this afternoon. I've (laughs) kind of make sure I cancel that appropriately. So I just, you know, I thought that was awesome. And there's been a lot of changes, obviously, since June. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing probably being the biggest. And Arin not only wrote her biography, but has a personal connection to the justice. She had asked her to officiate her wedding. And Justice Ginsburg said yes. And so Arin has that... uh, very awesome personal connection as well. So obviously Justice Ginsburg's passing was tragic for all of us, but for Rin, uh, it had a lot of dimensions as well. And now she's, you know, navigating motherhood and maternity leave, paternity leave for her husband, all these different things that, you know, Justice Ginsburg really fought for and helped pave the way for. And if you haven't read Notorious RBG yet, go check it out. It, it's a biography, but it's not a biography in the sense of like a like a David McCullough or, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's not one of those long, you know, 900 page, here's every step that this person ever took. And it's told in a really compelling way. It's very graphic intensive. There's lots of photos. There's lots of charts, lots of illustrations. It almost feels more like a textbook than a book, but a textbook that you want to read. You know, it's not like you know, I don't know, 10th grade science or something. It's a fun book and inspiring. And you just realize the impact that Justice Ginsburg had as a law student, as a lawyer for the ACLU, and later as a justice. So go check out Notorious RBG. So yeah, Erin and I, we talk about Justice Ginsburg a lot. We talk about the Me Too movement, how it overlaps and intersects with Black Lives Matter. We talk parenting. We talk journalism. She's got a great perspective on all of it. It was a fun talk. Glad we made it happen. Here it is, my interview with Arin Carmone. So I want to start by just asking sort of generally how these last, uh, I, what, 
nine months, I guess, however long it's been <laughs> since we've been in this quarantine, this pandemic. How has uh, how has this time been for you? So from the beginning of the pandemic, I have been among the very blessed people. I have the ability to stay home. I have a steady job. My husband is employed. We have a good space to quarantine in. At the same time that things have been, you know, relatively okay and privileged personally, I've been, you know, anxious, stressed for my friends who are not able to stay home, for people in the country who are really vulnerable. So just kind of counting my blessings over here. Yeah. I definitely feel the same way. Like it's, it's amazing how easy it's been to adapt for, you know, for those of us that, that have the ability to do that. Like it's, it's been kind of nice almost for me, you know, we've got a a seven and four year old here and just, you know, I've been home with them since the beginning of this and it's been kind of nice. And I feel like weirdly guilty saying that sometimes. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because I actually feel like the friends that I have that have slightly older kids that have a lot of energy and miss their friends have a really tough time. So I'm glad to hear that with a seven and four year old, it's been okay for me. You know, I had a baby in June. Right. I, the day that I had the baby was when we originally scheduled this interview. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so um, I was in my third trimester, I think when the pandemic started, so it was like pretty easy for me to stay home, you know, Netflix and hanging out being gigantic anyway. Yeah. And it was cold in New York. And then since then, newborn life is not that different. Right. I mean, it, it, and it, the silver lining for me is that, you know, my husband and I are both home all the time and get to spend time with the baby. You know, the challenging thing is um, when my husband's paternity leave is up, you know, we're going to be figuring out childcare and there's mm. still so much in the air. Right. But all, all that said, you know, and if anybody asks me how I am on a personal level, you know, I feel very blessed on a macro level as someone who cares about the other people in this country. It's freaking terrifying. Right. Even now. Yeah, it, it continues to be. And I mean, that just like seeing that death toll continue to climb, seeing the caseload continue to climb and just feeling like it's it's just kind of like a wildfire burning out of control right now. And like, I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, if if it continues unchecked until the inauguration, let's say, like, is it, it has too much progressed at that point? to be able to put, you know, the horses back in the barn, so to speak. Like, that's where my head is. Yeah. I mean, we're so close to the end, but the community spread is so high. I'm reading the same things everyone else is reading, and I'm trying to do some reporting. And, you know, it just feels like we just need to get through the next two months right. as, and try to be as safe as we can. And there are a lot of people who are not able to do that. And so we're actually kind of back to the rhetoric where we were in the beginning of this. Remember, everybody's staying home, right. stay home so because I can't. Right. And here we are back where we started. Yeah, it feels like March and April all over again, at least in some places. Like there, there are definitely yeah. parts of the country I mean, we that know aren't more. paying we attention. Know more. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. Masking and But all that's that. what we need to do, obviously. Well, I want to ask you too, just, you know, figuring out that balance as a new parent, like in normal times, it's especially challenging to, you know, to figure out just your new life, you know, as co-parents, as a couple, um, uh, you know, the, the the child's needs and, you know, sort of work and social needs and all that. Like, has that, I know you don't have a lot to compare it to, I guess, but is it, has that been <laughs> challenging during this pandemic? Has that made it an extra level of, of difficult? So I think it's more the ability, the inability to plan. Mm. I am by nature a planner. Yep. Like I said, we, we have a very blessed situation because I had four months of paid leave and I ended up taking a break from that leave when Justice Ginsburg died to just comment on that and yeah. deal with things around work. And um, I also I took a break for a story. And so I ended up having actually a little bit longer than that because I suspended it for about two weeks, all told. And then my husband has, he's a professor and he had also paid leave 
where technically he had two months, but he had, but my daughter was born in the summer. So he doesn't teach in the summer. So it, in the end, he had about six months of flexibility. Nice. And next year he's on sabbatical. Oh, nice. Um, he's, yeah. he's on contract to write a graphic memoir um, oh, cool. about being the grandson of Holocaust survivors. Wow. And that's a serious project that I want to make sure that he has time for, right. but you know, it's, it's always, you know, any partnership where, you know, everybody has their dreams and their responsibilities. We're just really trying to take it like one week at a time right now. Yeah. We have some family members who are able to help, but because we are potted with my parents and my father is extremely high risk, we really aren't doing anything. Yeah. We're not going to stores. You know, we don't go anywhere that's not outdoors, which is diminishing an opportunity here, even with global warming. Sure. And so it's more like not knowing you know, I think it's ultimately because of the way our jobs are structured. It's ultimately my husband who is making the sacrifices, but we're trying to figure out, you know, okay, so I'll be with the baby. We're trying to sort of debut it now. Right. I'll be with the baby from like 6 to 8 a.m. or from 8 to 10 a.m. And then in the evening and he's, he's able to draw on his iPad so he'll be working whenever he can. And she right. started napping better, but it's just a constant negotiation communication thing. Well, and it's interesting just sort of hearing all of that. Like I I was just rereading your book, Notorious RBG, and being struck by how far we've come already in terms of, you know, just parental rights and, you know, pregnancy and just sort of all this. And I wonder, you know, as you were writing that book and now sort of living through that and talking about, you know, co-parenting and parental leave, you know, paternity leave and just things that, that didn't exist, you know, a generation or two ago. Like, I wonder how much of Justice Ginsburg you had sort of in your head as you were going, as you were trying to navigate your own experience during that time. Oh, God, constantly. I mean, I think partly because what Justice Ginsburg had and what we have is still really aspirational for the vast majority of people in the United States who right. don't have access to any kind of parental leave, even if they are the person who gives birth, and even fewer people have access to paternity leave. And so I, the only reason it's been workable is because we are a model lucky and everybody should have access to this right. paid leave, um, job protected leave. And especially during the pandemic, honestly, I mean, this is just, this is when paying people to stay home makes a lot of sense. But the, you know, just even to have this as an aspirational like entity, Justice Ginsburg and her husband really did divide the labor to the extent possible. I think with them, it was a lot of also ticking turns. There were times in the beginning where his career really took precedence. And then when she started to rise as a litigator and then as a judge, um, her husband made sacrifices and he was a huge supporter and promoter of her career in a way that just didn't exist at the time. I mean, this is a couple that got married in the 1950s. So when my husband and I um, wrote Justice Ginsburg a letter uh, he was then my fiance asking if she would officiate at our wedding. We cited the example that they set as one of the reasons that we would be really honored to have her come. Oh, that's great. She must have been touched by that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he, she had heard it before, but it's, it's also because there just aren't that many role models. I mean, I think our generation is trying to do it, but again, it's, it's there's so many things that have to fall into place. I mean, you, if you look at the statistics right now about who is being pushed out of the paid workforce, it is predominantly women. Yeah. And it's actually disproportionately Black and Latina women. And so, you know, people are only able to have this kind of negotiation and this respect when they have the structural change, right? So there's a lot of, there may be some people who can, who have the ability to share equally in both their professional aspirations and their caregiving responsibilities. But for most people, I think it's something that they would love to be able to do if only they had the support. So I think for them, they, it worked out great. 
we have the ability to do it. And I just really wish we lived in a country where everybody could have that kind of support to, to be able to say, okay, it's your turn now. Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, one of the things too, that really struck me in your book was the reframing that she did as a litigator, you know, working with the ACLU, that it wasn't women's rights issues. It was about human rights and equality and, you know, trying to bring men along as well and saying, this isn't an issue that affects you. And, you know, I, I wonder sort of, where we are with that sort of dialogue today of, you know, women's rights versus human rights. So I think I think she was a passionate proponent for women's liberation and made no apologies for that. But yeah. I think she also realized a few things. One, pragmatically, if women's roles were changed so that they could do the things that had traditionally been associated with men, like join the military, serve on a jury, run for office, go to the military academy, it would only change so much of the world if men continued doing what they were doing because of these caregiving responsibilities that I just mentioned, which have historically fallen much more on women and not been shared right. um, or been outsourced to lower income women without any kind of job protection or stability. So I think the idea was, first of all, if you want true women's liberation, everybody has to be liberated from these structures and these cultural and social constraints. And then secondly, it actually harms men to say that there's only one way to be a man. Yeah. And this is something that she was saying, you know, in the early 1970s at the Supreme Court, which was all male and would continue to be all male until 1981. And she argued that for men who wanted to, for example, she had the client who took care of his child and did not get the same kind of survivor benefits as he would have if he was a woman because people couldn't imagine a man being a primary caregiver or another man who took care of an elderly parent. The law had basically said caregiving is women's work. And she argued that that didn't just hurt women, it hurt men. And, you know, my husband and I, we talk about this all the time now. It's, I, I feel so bad for people who, for men who, because of the way they've been raised or because of the way society is structured, aren't getting the joys of for example, taking care of a tiny baby. Sure. Uh, because it's hard, but it's also really joyful. Yeah. And so to say, like, this is only one person's job, it creates resentment. And it also the person who is cut out of it is is, is missing out. Yeah, okay, who likes to wake up five times in the night? <laughs> right. It's temporary. And then you get the first smile. And, you, you know, I mean, you know this. Right. And so I think her vision was, was to say that we all need to be liberated from these stereotypes and these strictures together. It was a bold vision because we still don't have that. But and it was also one that was very expansive. I think it was a, it was also the same vision that allowed her to, for example, wholeheartedly support LGBTQ rights because she was not invested in this is men's roles, this is women's roles, and this is, these are women's roles, and these are how people are supposed to be in the world, including who they love. And I, but I think it also it it was what she lived in her own life, and she wanted the law to not limit people's potential or opportunities. Right. But the fact is, it's so hard that we haven't really achieved it yet. Yeah. And, and well, that was something, too, that, you know, sort of as you're saying that you're pointing out a lot of these examples that, that stood out to me in the book as well of, you know, we look we tend to look, I think, and not just laws, but even just practices and customs and things about sort of how it affects the majority of people or, you know, even 90 or 99 percent of people. But there's always going to be that little minority that that rule doesn't apply to or that, you know, it, it somehow becomes discriminatory. And I think it's important for all of us to sort of realize, who, you know, who who is affected by those policies 
and to make sure, you know, if we're going to be a more just and equal society, that we're looking out for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, it may be that what we assume is the majority is actually just the way that things have been done for a very long time. Too. Right. I mean, it used to be a minority that women had paid labor outside of the home. Right. You know, and now it's now it's the majority. Um, I mean, I think if we open up the possibilities of how we can imagine our lives, it doesn't really have to be as, as brutal and as punishing as it is right now. Yeah. Um, and so I think that she was doing the beginning of the work, which was to make sure that the law didn't impose those judgments on people and didn't discriminate against them. And then I think the part that hasn't been done yet and that is really going to fall to our generation is to to make it more than just you won't. First of all, she fought for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which makes it illegal to discriminate against pregnant people, but that hasn't, you know, it's, it's really hard to prove that that's why you've been discriminated against. And in practice, it's been narrowed by the courts. And so there's still tons of discrimination on the basis of pregnancy and on parenting. Yeah. But also everything that I've been talking about, the ability to have access to paid leave. And, you know, in Sweden, where RBG spent a big chunk of her formative time, you know, they get 300, I think it's 480 days split between the parents, like wow. eight months each. And you can take it until the kid is like 12. Wow. Or maybe it's eight. In any case, it's not. <laughs> it's not the it's first not just couple about of weeks or whatever. From childbirth. Right. Yeah. So that I mean, and that's when you're lucky. And so yeah, it's all very well to say that you know we all have an equal access to these things. But if you, if you don't give people the support, for example, access to affordable childcare, you know, when I was in Sweden, kind of following in RBG's footsteps, you know, you meet couples who they, like they, they told me they pay more, they cap the cost of childcare, they have these great high quality kindergartens. And they pay more to park their car in Stockholm than they do for this high quality kindergarten. Yeah, we need more of that for sure. And, you know, I wonder, though, like, I feel like generally we're moving in, in a more liberal direction and, you know, more open and more accommodating. But legislatively, you know, or judicially, I guess, you know, we've got Amy Coney Barrett now in our RGB seat Mm -hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't really know yet, I guess, what the Supreme Court is going to look like. And I don't know. I, guess, I wonder sort of as somebody who's paid close attention to this, like, what are your thoughts on sort of where we might be headed and what battles might be coming in the next couple of years? Yeah, look, I, I think that currently the Supreme Court is not representative of the general population's views. And, you know, we're talking about a majority of the country for example, voted for Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And so while the Supreme Court is not supposed to be a representative body, I mean, to have a 6-3 Supreme Court where they are far, far, far to the right of the median American is only because of how Republicans have exploited the system. Right. You know, and the the ways in which Justice Ginsburg, one of one of the occasions on which Justice Ginsburg became the notorious RBG the day that my co-author Shauna named her that, was because of her dissent in the Shelby County versus Holder case, which was a, a case in which a 5-4 majority profoundly undermined voting rights protections that had been in place for decades and that were bipartisan. Right. And in the aftermath of that decision in 2013, it became that much easier to rig voting. And so once you do that, it becomes easier to set up a system that is not representative of the people. You make it harder to vote in every possible way. 
the Electoral College and the Senate are already stacked in such a way that give disproportionate power to rural conservative white people. Yep. And that's how we end up with the Supreme Court, because we ended, we ended up with the Supreme Court because of the Senate and right. the presidency. And unfortunately, RBG dying six weeks before the election. So I think we have a real disconnect here where I, if you look at what people need and want and say that they want, you know, gender equality, racial equality, social justice writ large, that's the majority of people. But that's not what we have reflected in our system. And it's, it's very concerning. And I think that, you know, the incoming administration can do a lot, but the Supreme Court is for life. Right. So I don't I don't have a good solution for that at all. But I think it's something we have to be really vigilant about. And part of the reason that Justice Ginsburg, you know, put on her snazzy dissenting collar and spoke so often to the public is because she wanted everybody to be paying attention to what was happening, including this dismantling of really, really important pieces of legislation that protected people for a long time. Right. And so it, it kind of tells you something, which is that history can sometimes move backwards or that progress is not linear. Do you think adding justices is in the cards? Do you think the general population would go for that or the, or the Senate and the people that need to vote on it? It was always a long shot, but now, you know, we're kind of in a coin flip situation about who controls the Senate. Right, right. So either way, if Democrats manage to get a narrow majority in the Senate, they do not have the numbers to do that. Yeah. Because so of I Joe Manchin and people like that. that yeah. 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 I mean, they're not going to be, there was already going to be a tough fight over it if, if Democrats had swept every possible race where they were up. But, you know, this is... We have to figure out a way to work with the country that we have. Yeah. I want to go back and just sort of ask about your your roots, I guess, and try to figure out sort of what what it was that led you to first want to be a journalist. What what planted that first seed for you? Uh, Well, I always loved to write. And then I think that the moment that I figured out that as a journalist, you didn't just except for in a pandemic, you didn't just stay at home, but you could go places and talk to people and be there where the action was. And I still get to do a lot of reporting on the phone. You know, that was very exciting to me from an early age as a teenager, as somebody who just kind of wanted to get into rooms and go places and talk to people and ask rude questions. (laughs) And then I also, you know, in my K through 12 school, there was in the library, there was this shelf of biographies. It was, it was super old biographies. They probably been there since like the 1950s. Uh-huh. And I read so many of these biographies, but mostly I just wanted to read the biographies of women. And there were only two that I can remember, Mary Todd Lincoln and Julia Ward Ho. Wow. And one was first lady. And I just always got bored reading the men's ones. Yeah. No offense. Um, but I just felt like there should have been more stories of women on there. And so I do think that there have come full circle in that sense, that I wanted to make sure that there were stories that were not otherwise being told that I could report on. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, I, I guess your your reporting has gone very heavily into the direction of, you know, bringing, bringing a spotlight to women's rights issues and things like that. And it sounds like that that experience in particular was formative. I wonder sort of what else helped form that uh that desire in you to report on these issues specifically? You know, I I have once heard Melissa Harris Perry describe feminism as asking the question, you know, what is not here? Hmm. And that's a question that has always, I'm sure, mingling that she said it much more eloquently. (laughs) But feminism, that which is not present, Uh um, whose voice is missing? And and I I just think that that, that's just a question that I've always wanted to try to answer. That's interesting. 
Um, I, I want to ask you too about the Me Too movement and sort of your role in helping break uh, the Charlie Rose accusations uh, back in 2017. That was, as I understand it, a seven-year process? Yes, although not the entire seven years, to okay. be fair. Yeah. I, I first heard about it. I got a tip um, when I was working at Jezebel in 2010, and I contacted several of the people. I heard one of the stories that was eventually published in the Washington Post. I heard it like second or third hand. I knew the individual. That person um, made it clear that they were not interested in speaking, and I contacted several other people who were working on the show, and it just it just kept hitting dead ends. And that was really as much time as I could spend on it in that context and that particular time. And people were just not ready. But one of the things that was incredible about the reporting and the organizing around me too, is that you made other people feel safe and feel like they could talk either in their own terms or to a reporter, which is, you know, could be a really challenging process. I'm completely sympathetic to anybody who does not really feel like telling their story because it's really hard and there's no, guarantee that that it'll be worth it honestly but once the stories about harvey weinstein started coming out um i just thought you know i wonder whether it's worth coming back to this and one of the first people i called had been the initial tipster and that person said to me i've been waiting for you to call yeah it had been seven years at that point wow what do you think what do you think caused the Weinstein allegations to come to light? And like, what changed in the culture? Because you're right, that that was a moment where kind of the dam broke. And then all of these stories that had been kind of right at the surface, but hadn't really been reported. It was just like this, this tidal wave. Like, what do you think Mm -hmm. changed in that moment that that allowed these stories to start coming out? I think Trump's presidency was part of it. Mm. He was accused of he was credibly accused of sexual harassment and assault by multiple women. And there was this kind of first round of people sharing their stories in the fall of 2016 around the access Hollywood tape around the allegations against him. And then he was elected anyway. And then there were, you know, there was this taking to the streets for the women's March. And I think all of those were kind of early laying the groundwork of course, Me Too um, had been a hashtag that was crafted by Toronto Burke in an earlier context around uh, young Black women or, or Black women in general experiencing sexual violence. So I think, uh, in a way, all of these events were kind of laying the groundwork. And I, I always think that part of why the Harvey Weinstein story of all stories struck such a chord, even though it, it was a world that most people will never experience. One, the reporting was really, really good. Yeah. Both the New York Times and the New Yorker um, just found really nuanced and, and evidence-based ways to tell the story and from different perspectives. The New York Times focusing more on uh, the sexual harassment and the, and the settlements. Um, the New Yorker focusing more on, on the violence. But I also think that it was it actually helped that the people who had come forward to say that they'd been violated were so recognizable to the American public. Uh-huh. And in a way, the same kinds of stereotypes that people like to trot out in an allegation of sexual assault or harassment, like they just want to be famous. They're just trying to get money. You know, this is a misunderstanding. Who is this woman? They they just weren't applicable when you had Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie coming out. Right. Um, and, you know, some of that stuff did come later. But in the moment, it was just there was sheer force of the information that was coming out, I think, made people feel comfortable that they, too, could talk about this. It was almost like a movie 
that everybody was watching at the same time and had a similar reaction to. Yeah. And I think since then, you know, the actual follow-up is a, we have the same kinds of complexities and conflicts that we did before. But but that that fall of 2017 really was a moment to live through. Yeah, well, I, I wonder, like, these stories had lived just under the surface for so long and were kind of, they were rumors almost, you know, maybe not specific allegations or specific people, specific victims, I guess I should say, but perpetrators, it seems like it was fairly well known. And I wonder, like, what was it that allowed all these things to just to stay in the shadows for so long to people to continue to get, you know, big contracts and book deals and, you know, shows and whatever, like these people, many of them were very, very prominent. And that that success just continued for a long, long time until all of a sudden it didn't. I think part of it is that the realm of acceptable male behavior hid a lot of the violence. Mm. So for I can speak for the, the Charlie Rose situation. You know, he surrounded himself with young, vulnerable, conventionally attractive women. Yep. And he was known as a quote unquote ladies man. And that kind of blurring of the professional and the personal, it was the kind of thing where people just joked about it or there was a wink and a nod. Right. With Harvey Weinstein, you know, there were jokes in the Oscars and other places about you know, the casting couch, this is a term that kind of neutralizes a super violent uh, at best transaction and at worst violation. Right. And so I, I think so much of this behavior had been normalized, even what was visible. And when you think about it now, you're like, wait, that's kind of creepy. But pe- I mean, people didn't have to know about the actual violence or the settlements. Uh, and the threats behind the scenes to know that these guys were creeps, but our society kind of says it's okay for powerful men to do that or to quote our outgoing president, you know, when you're a celebrity, they just let you do it. So I think that it's actually because we normalized a certain level of predatory behavior towards women already. And then nobody really wanted to ask as long as they were in the orbit of these men who were considered talented or money-making or charismatic and a lot of people wanted to benefit from those things. Sure. So it was too hard to go up against that. I think, the, and also there was a lot of, a lot. There were a lot of people who had no idea if it was, uh, if they were the only ones. And so something that social media and the reporting that happened allowed them to do is to feel less isolated and to feel like they could speak up. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, I feel like uh, I remember that fall very well uh, of 2017. And, you know, as we've been talking about, sort of that that dam breaking and feeling the same way over the summer with with what happened with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and seeing these conversations that had had been, I guess, more at the fringe, suddenly becoming very, very mainstream and being, you know, on the mm-hmm. nightly news and things like that. I wonder, you know, your thoughts on the parallels between Me Too and Black Lives Matter. First of all, there are direct overlaps, right? Um, people like Alicia Garza, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, have also been organizing, for example, for domestic workers to be free from from sexual assault. But I, I also think that, you know, I always wonder what is it that really lights a fire, because sometimes it actually feels like you have to keep having the same conversation over and over again for anything mm. to change. Yeah. So there had been many moments of reckoning that I remember. They were much smaller, but the many moments of reckoning around sexual assault and harassment. And of course, there was a huge reckoning that happened around Ferguson before this summer's protest. Right. And yet there was not enough change. There was not enough momentum. Um, you didn't have the same kind of 
for example, public opinion change that you saw this summer. And so I actually think that's just the kind of thing that we have to keep repeating over and over again. And I think it's really hard because for people who have suffered sexual violence, you know, having reported on that, there is this kind of how many times do they have to spill their guts and their trauma out in person? And I've read and heard from friends for whom the question of Black Lives Matter is deeply personal, that it's also this reliving constantly of trauma, having to watch videos of Black people being harmed again and again just for existing. These torture videos, a lot of them. And so I think it comes at a big cost. It's not, you know, uh, raising awareness does not come without a cost to the people who are the victims here. But unfortunately, I think it takes doing that again and again. Each time I'm like, why now? Why not when we were talking about this last year? But something comes like it's all about the timing. And I don't think that you can create that kind of timing. I mean, this summer it was because of what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But there had been George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's before. Sure. And and there continue to be now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a confluence of, you know, why was the public ready to listen? Maybe it was also the coronavirus Mm. and maybe it was also watching the kind of raw racism in the Trump era too, making it impossible to say that this was something that was behind us, even though these are also very local stories. And in that way, I think it's also like the Me Too movement, which is that Trump kind of creates, brings these things into relief. You can't really say these things are behind us when they're happening out of the White House. Right. I want to sort of wrap up with just your thoughts on where we're headed in journalism and the media. And, you know, you've been on so many sides of it on, on the TV side with NBC and MSNBC and, you know, on the on the print side now with New York Magazine. Like, in in some ways, I feel like we have access to more information than ever. But in others, it feels like the media business is just kind of in a tailspin and, you know, layoffs, consolidation, like... Which makes me very nervous, I guess, for the future of information in this country. I wonder just sort of your view on where we're headed and what some of the bumps along the road might look like. You know, something that I worry about uh, when it comes to both the diversity and quality of our information from the journalism perspective is that we seem to have an ever polarized system where a few people can do extremely well, um, in part maybe because they're grandfathered from previous forms of media. There are some people who are doing just fine. And I mean, I consider myself extremely lucky, but I mean, there, you know, people are still really subscribing to the New York Times to read Thomas Friedman and Maureen Dowd for reasons that are a little bit opaque to me. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, people leaving to start their own sub stack, that kind of thing. Will some people continue to get paid? Yes. If a young person comes to me now and says, I want to be a journalist, I find it really, really hard because I don't want to discourage people from doing this important work, but I also know that it's really structurally challenged. And I also, I don't think that only people who are well off should be part of our media apparatus, but that is, you're talking about signing on to an extremely precarious life. And to be honest, I'm surprised I still have a full-time job in it. I feel, like I said, extremely lucky that I do, but I, I don't really know what advice to give to folks who are just coming up when we don't, when when everything changes so quickly and then we might end up in a world where the New York times is everything and local news hardly exists. And I I don't think that's good for our democracy. I mean, I've been speaking about, you know, giving people advice on a personal level, but you know, I I think it really connects to what's going to happen on a national level because people need to get 
good quality information from people that they trust in a range of individuals yeah. um, and a range of sources too, not just one source. And it, I think we could all be practicing information hygiene too, to kind of stop before you share <laughs> and to fact check and read multiple sources. And it turns out all of us need to be kind of acting like journalists, lest we also be carried along the tide of misinformation of the internet. Yeah. But, but that takes a lot of work and that takes a lot of critical thinking and I like yeah. just speaking for myself, I know that it's taken me a long time. I mean, well into my 30s to figure out how to think it was I, I came up through public schools in Ohio and just that that wasn't taught. You know, you were you were sort of taught to just yeah. respect the information that you were given by a teacher. And in the same way, you know, the new I remember like as a kid, my local newspaper my parents were like, oh, you know, that's that's a Republican paper. And we subscribed to it. And I was mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? What what? And like thinking back on it, you know, there were editorials about loosening gun laws and, you know, things like that. But it just it didn't it didn't occur to me that news could have a, a bias or a spin, you know, at whatever, 15, 16 years old. And it, it, I guess for me, it's taken a lot of work to get to that place, to realize that and to do that homework. And I don't think most people are are at that point or want to do that work. No, but I, I do think that it's important that we try to promote it and all engage in it if we want to have a democracy that works. Yeah. Because part of the problem of what I talked about, about the disconnect between the vast majority of people's views and the country that we have is that enough people have been captured by misinformation. You know, whether it's coronavirus, the vaccine, politics, um, it's, it's a real threat to our country if we can't get people to um, get access to good information and to believe it. Yeah. Do you see, you talked about Substack and stuff, like, do you see a decentralization of newsrooms perhaps? I, I, I just, the, the overhead of a big news organization to me just feels less and less sustainable as we move forward. But I don't know how one guy with a Substack or, you know, a podcast or a Facebook Live or whatever you know, how how they gain credibility or any sort of reach? I mean, it's hard to start from the beginning, but there are certainly people who have built reach from, you know, having had medium-sized reach to great reach. Yeah. I, I think anybody who engages in journalism is a journalist, right? And that is a practice of inquiry and research and thoughtfulness and checking your biases and being transparent with your reader or your listener. So I'm, I don't mean to be a gatekeeper. I just think that we all need to engage in good information hygiene if we're going to have a country that functions. All right, there we go. Arin Carmon. She was awesome. I learned so much from her. I feel like I say that with every guest, but that's what I love about this show is just getting to have these great conversations with people and, you know, really hear from people that dig deep into lots of different things. Arin's book, Notorious RBG, is available now. It's been out for the last five years. So if you're one of the few people that hasn't read it yet, again, go check it out. It is really good. And Arin writes now for New York Magazine. So check out her work there. All right. I want to tell you about Thursday's show before I go. I'm going to be talking to Liz Winstead, who is a comedian and a producer and an activist and a little bit of everything. Liz was one of the co-founders of The Daily Show. She was the head writer there for the first like two years of that show. She also co-founded Air America. So she has a lot of experience melding comedy and current events. And she actually has a new comedy special that is streaming right now on Vimeo On Demand. 
It's a very DIY special. She shot it at the edge of a lake in Minnesota and around a fire pit in Minnesota. And uh, it's a it's a cathartic release for these times. I'll say that. And you'll learn more about it on Thursday. So if you haven't yet, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you'll be among the first to hear that show when it comes out on Thursday. And if you haven't yet, go sign up for the newsletter as well. Quarantine Creatives newsletter comes out every Sunday. Go to heathrasala.com and enter your email address there to get that delivered to your inbox for free. And new episodes of Quarantine Creatives come out every Monday and Thursday. I hope to see you back here on Thursday for Liz Winstead. That'll be a fun one. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a note. Let me know what you guys are thinking about. Stay safe out there. Vaccine is coming. 